thank you for joining our conversation on Wow Whispering. I am your host, Diane A. Curran, and it is delightful to be with you. Wow is spontaneous, open, expressive. Whispering is intimate, still, receptive. In our modern age, moments rush in or away like quicksilver. Do we even make the time to savor a wow or reflect on a whisper, to notice and value such gifts? We're ready to do just that with you right now. Well, I am very excited to be with everyone here on Wow Whispering again today, this morning, this afternoon, tonight, whenever you're listening, that's what time of day it is. And I have a wonderful guest with me today. Her name is Dr. Marilyn Ruman. I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about her in a moment, but I just wanna give her a chance to say hello to everyone. Marilyn, how are you doing today? It's good to have you with us. I'm doing great. I'm doing great, and it's fantastic to be with you guys So, and with you. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Well, I, I love that Marilyn is up for the adventure of conversation we're going to have today, and I want to share a little something about a woman who is masterful at communication and also considers herself, I would say, a lifelong teacher, but also a lifelong student. She's always up for discovering what's new and how people are creating their lives and maybe where they need support and help. And that brings me to her background. Dr. Marilyn Ruman is the founder and director of Marilyn Ruman Clinical and Consulting Associates in Beverly Hills and Brentwood, California. The center serves children, adolescents, and adults, also providing training and consulting services to businesses, institutions, and community organizations. Well, that is quite a mission. Now, as the founder of the American Association for Mediated Divorce, uh, Dr. Ruman is a pioneer in developing models of conflict resolution and alternative dispute resolution, which are now widely used by mental health professionals and by attorneys. She's a recognized lecturer and contributor to the media institutions that support, and she also supports women's personal and professional development. And I gotta tell you, as amazing as that all is, I have just really touched the tip of the ocean of Marilyn's experience. So Marilyn, if it's okay with you, I'd like to share a couple of things about your involvement in communicating the value of the kind of knowledge and support that you provide to people. You are somebody who's been a media consultant for a long time. And here in Los Angeles, we know of K-Earth FM radio, we know KABC talk radio, and then also several Los Angeles TV stations from Entertainment Tonight to the Cable News Network, the LA Times, USA Today. It's really astonishing as well as magazines that are all about self-improvement and self-development. She's also been a staff writer for New Woman Magazine and has contributed to a variety of publications and journals. She's the co-author of, I love this title, Beyond Sanity and Survival, a handbook (laughs) for stress management. You know what? You're saying there's something beyond that. You know, I love that you have a vision of what comes next, right? Well, the hardest thing to do is to create titles, you know, so I'm listening to that and having to chuckle myself. So, um, Well, it is because you've got so much work behind and so much information to communicate that kind of getting it down to a few words is, is, a, is a bit of a challenge at times. And there's so many more other articles 
But I also want to mention that Marilyn was involved in, uh, in the Los Angeles Medical Advisory Committee for the 1984 Summer Olympics. So she has been a longtime contributor to the community of Los Angeles, really welcoming the world here. And Los Angeles is nothing if not a welcoming city that people flock to and want to be here, but in a variety of ways. So you've really been involved in so much. But Marilyn, now's where I'm going to really share a couple of things that I am so excited to let people know. And that is that when Marilyn was uh, preparing for her PhD and developing her dissertation topic, let me just be sure I say it correctly here. This is a mouthful. Talk about titles, Marilyn. I'm going to say this, but then we're going to talk about it. You're not really going to say this out loud, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I just have to because, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing about the effort to describe a body of work that clearly took some time, an extraordinary effort, and was pioneering in itself. And here's what it is. Her, di her dissertation title is, epigenetic synergistic study of the life experience and career commitment of select eminent women in business, politics, and professions. Now, doesn't that sound like a mouthful? <laughs> it was a mouthful, believe me. And it filled two I, volumes. <laughs> well, there you go, because what Marilyn did, and uh, I did not know her at this time, but I am so fascinated by the little bit that you shared. I'm hoping, Marilyn, that you can share a little bit with our audience about what your topic was and what an extraordinary opportunity you had to meet some women in life that are, are very dedicated to being in the public realm, being a public service, and really making a name for themselves in terms of their involvement on the world stage. So tell, tell us a little bit about what was behind your choice of topics that had to do with these selected eminent women? Well, this was in the 70s, and mm -hmm. I was a student, a PhD student, in an eminent graduate's program at UCLA, where basically we were consigned to dealing with the, the tracking habits of rats, all right, and behavioral studies that really were much more experimental in nature. And I was, was intrigued. Your, Marilyn, I have just one quick question. Was this in the realm of psychology? Was that kind of an This is as a psychologist, absolutely. Ah. And my PhD is in, is in psychology. Ah. But at the time, programs were much more based on research and clinical and, and experimental psychology. And very little work was being done in the clinical area uh, at, at some of the top schools. But I was particularly and personally interested in what made it possible for these women that I was coming to admire and coming to really notice that were coming forward, what made it possible for them to be the outliers that they were? Because certainly in the 70s and obviously still now, you know, women who reach the highest levels of success, particularly in politics, and often in business, are outliers. They're still not representative of any large statistic in our society. You know, in our Congress, we have 22% of women are represented in our Congress. And, and, you know, and if we just keep plodding away at it, it'll still take us till 2085 to reach any parity with men. So wow. there, there's just so much was intriguing me. So I argued with the school. Fortunately, they 
they they folded on my behalf. I argued with the school <laughs> to let me do a narrative study, a, a study that actually went out and looked at real people who were doing something. And I promised them that at the end of it, I would contribute to the field of psychology something that really had not yet been done. And that was looking at the identity development of women. Most identity development studies at that time had been based on men, how men develop over time. And now, is that so because I was, that were mostly men doing the studying? Was that, was well, that, because mostly was, men, yes, at the time I went to school, you know, I was one of five women in a class. Unfortunately, at this okay. point, I mean, that's not true. But but it's because men were doing the studies and also mm -hmm. because the archetype of leadership and success was male and in our oh. society, definitely male. So mm -hmm. why would anyone study women and why would they be interested in, you know, what they were doing? So, you know, so the reference was really a guy reference. And even some of the major psychoanalysts in the field really looked at what happened when things happened to men. And people like Freud looked at women but developed notions of hysteria and, you know, and, and things of that sort in explaining behavior. So a lot of it was very gender-based. So I wanted, I thought, if I talk to these real women, maybe they'll give me some tips. And at a very personal level, I was looking for role models. You know, I was fortunate enough to be raised in a family where my father was an incredibly, you know, incredibly high achiever. He was a nuclear scientist. And my mom was a much more traditional housewife who was really frightened I wouldn't get married at the age of 18. But, oh, but my dad was, you know, was really somebody who kind of fostered, you know, all the dreams and all the possibilities I ever had. And, but I wanted to find out how women were doing it out there. So I thought, okay, so why not try something? So I did something that later on I look back and I think, oh my God, you know, what chutzpah, you know, what kind of, what kind of a sense of possible did I possibly have? I sent out a letter using indexes and indices of, you know, who's who in American women, who's who, and all Nobel Prize winners, and all of the lists of women I could find who had reached, you know, eminent status and achievement. I sent out a letter to about, I don't know, 60 of these women. Well, lo and behold, 40 of them responded and said, Oh my God. Come on down, you know, come and meet me. And then I put together a very quantified questionnaire that really looked at all of the things that help people develop over time, the parental influences, biological influences, social influences, which is why it's called epigenic, because it's really over time, the synergy with society, how all of the influences, psychosocial, biological, influence our development. And went, looked, set up a questionnaire that looked at all of those areas, and then went around the country for two years, interviewing people like, quite, quite eminent right now, Diane Feinstein and Barbara Boxer, Sherry Lansing, Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Dole, Gloria Steinem, Billie Jean King, Catherine Graham, uh, Elizabeth Blackburn, Sister Mary Carita Kent, and later and more recently, people like Rachel Maddow, Melinda Gates, Cheryl Sanbury, and Mary Barra, and and women who really made their you know made themselves notable in areas that were predominantly male. 
And so Marilyn, I have a question for you right here because you indicated that you started this some years ago. In other words, these are women who have become iconic in our culture. Were they already extremely prominent or were they on the rise or was it a variety? Some of, of them were on the rise. Some of them were extremely okay. prominent. Tyann Feinstein as you know, was, was somebody who had already attained political, you know, political uh, sort of eminence. So was Barbara mm -hmm. Boxing. Sherry Lansing was the CEO already of Paramount Pictures. Elizabeth Warren was on her way. Sandra Day O'Connor was one of the first chief justices who was a woman. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, later on. Uh, Gloria Steinem was well known to me as part of, you know, a rising women's movement. Yeah. And Billie Jean King, we know about from movies, was, you know, sort of on her way. Catherine Graham, you know, at that point had reached the lead of the of the of the uh, paper, the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the Washington so some Post. of these some of these women, yeah, Washington, Post, these people were clearly eminent. And then later on, you know, I, I, I picked up more contemporary women, because for a long time, I did this study, really did it and became very well known for looking at, you know, the rise of women, really mm -hmm. learned some things that were very personal for me, for the development of, of our daughters, and, mm -hmm. um, and the privilege of, of being involved with women over all these 25, 30 years. But, but, but then I put it in a box and put it away for a lot of years. And then, of course, in the last five, ten years, it's become critical for us to look again at how we help women endure the obstacles that are facing them to do this, you know, certainly in our leadership in our country and leadership politically. And I really believe that in order to do it, a woman needs to self-identify as somebody who can do those things. And that's Marilyn, not an easy thing to do. Really you know, I'm right with you because I'm intrigued with you. You were looking at women who were already ahead of their time. And now, in a sense, time has carried on. And we know that this pathway is available. It doesn't mean it's available to everybody. But you've said something really critical here, Marilyn, which is that they have to believe they can do this. And there's something yes. inside them that has to be available that isn't isn't available to everyone in life and certainly not early enough to do the kinds of things that have to be done to put them on a path of the kind of path that these women have been on. No, and, and, on. and look, I learned a lot of things about them that were certainly, you know, now are not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, you know, just, uh, Many of these things are things we know about women who are high achievers that, you know, that that many of them were had fathers or men in their lives who were important role models that, in fact, in fact, half of my sample, their mothers had died. They were really raised by their oh, fathers. Wow. They were often first children. They were often late mm -hmm. bloomers. You know, they mm -hmm. they often went to single sex schools where they had kind of time to bake a little longer. You know, they mm -hmm. had a work ethic that was absolutely amazing. You know, they had the ability of really, re, you know, re, really using failure as a lesson instead of, a, you know, as an obstacle. I learned so many things about them. But one of the things I learned is that no matter what, it's like anything else, you know, 
you can't copy somebody. You can learn from them, but ultimately you also just have to have a sense of yourself as being able to be one of those people. Because otherwise we compare and contrast ourselves and say, oh, oh but they're so bright or they're, they, they have this or they have that, you know, and we compare ourselves negatively. So my goal as a psychologist has been also to help professionals, the people in my field and people who are in society, teachers and other people, women like us who are with other women, really develop a mindset that allows them to believe, number one, that they can do it, give them the skills so that they can meet the obstacles in their path in doing it. And I've met some incredible people along the way. I mean, one of them is a woman by the name of Angela Duckworth, who wrote a great book called Grit, you know, which it was an amazing book and giving skill training in terms of how you develop the kind of kind of grit and self-identity that allows you to kind of move forward through obstacles and get over, you know, get over, um, you know, things that, that are in your path. And... And I, you know, looked at people who were developing models of resilience, a quality that I think women have in huge bucket loads, um, this amazing quality to not only get through and over and be purposeful and have determination and just really stretch themselves and view frustration and failure as a necessary part of process. But so I started looking at these models and looking at just how we can instruct people to have them. You know, um, actually, self-esteem, self-concept, self-identity is not DNA necessarily. You know, it's not like you either have, I was about to say blonde hair or not, but that's that's mutable now anyway. Um, <laughs> but, but, but it's, but it is, but you don't have to be born with some of this stuff. Yes, you have to have some native intelligence and you have to have some social structure that you know provides you the opportunity. But given that, many more of us can have a sense of self that allows us to see ourselves as, you know, as as leaders. And that's well, really what I was hoping to inspire. So here's what I want to say. You've opened up so many directions we could go in. I want to mention a couple of them because in, in framing this conversation inside the notion of in life, we, are, we have the experience of wow and we have the experience of whispering. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> wow, oftentimes, you know, in life, we grow up not really having a definition for the word. It becomes almost an expression that comes naturally and instinctively out of us when we have an experience that arrests us or grabs our attention. And sometimes that comes when we look at the courage that somebody displays in a certain situation that we would love to have, or we just notice that it really makes a difference in the public arena. And it seems like the women that you chose all were uh, I'm going to say they all have been in professions or at moments in time in their profession where what they did took took courage. For example, Billie Jean King, an athlete. Now you think, okay, Absolutely. an athlete is just 
practicing and becoming very good at what they do and hopefully they win their matches and then they rise and it's all very logical and normal. No, it wasn't that way when she was entering her time as a professional, but for a young tennis player. And she had to run into obstacles that she was instrumental in breaking down so they couldn't prevent others behind her uh, from, from having access to what she opened up. So there's a, there's a certain wow to her based on the impact she had on the world. But now, Marilyn, I'm going to I'm going to sort of move us over into the whispering side of the conversation if we can, because sure. I want to bring up something that you're doing right now that I'm excited about. And that is there's the kind of the soft con confidential tone of whispering. Sometimes people say, oh, whispering could be bad. It could be a whisper campaign. That's not good. But what I mean about whispering in this context is that it's oftentimes an opportunity to hear or receive or deliver a private message, something that inspires. And here's, here's what I'm getting at. Now, Marilyn and I have had an opportunity to share a, a passion for art and for right. appreciating art in, throughout history. And Marilyn, you've gone over to England at least a couple of summers, maybe even three, to both teach and learn and really right. expand your knowledge. And you shared with me a project that you started that probably started out as a whisper and it's about to become published about a woman that many of us don't even think about. She was important, but very long time ago in history. And her name is Queen Elizabeth I. Right. <laughs> I so know, that what, sounds, what that sounds so, so <laughs> off track and yet it isn't. You know, there is a very high correlation between um, purpose and perseverance, okay? And here's what I mean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You really have to locate what inspires you. What inspires you, okay? And, and, and it has to be yours, you know? Because if you have a purpose, you know, you will just keep moving on it. If, you re if it really interests you and it really inspires you, you'll have perseverance mm -hmm. with it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, th there's Okay, so so there's a there's a great old story that I that actually learned in England, and then I'll go back to Elizabeth, and it's the bricklayer story. Okay, so what are you doing? Okay, one person is laying bricks, two, another person is building a building, three is creating a place where people can come to worship someone that they really respect, their God, someone someone who gives them a meaningful life. Okay, mm. I think that people who really believe that they're creating a place where people can come to worship or, or something that has meaning to them, you know, can keep going way farther on the road than other people. And for me, learning about these women in every single way, and Elizabeth just came up for me when I, 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 I go to Oxford, and this is my, mm -hmm. will be my fourth summer. And I oh, teach wow. a class in social psychology, and I take classes. And the classes I take, I I have a motto, as as you may know. I mean, my motto is, you know, that you really. It's kind of it's it's. I, I call it sort of the hard, the uh, what do I call it? the hard thing rule? Okay, it is that okay. that that you should do something you don't know how to do. 
that you should well, let, do something that you're afraid of. Okay. Let me let me say what you said to me about it. You said it in a beautiful way as well as what you just shared with us. She said, "Do what frightens you. You will always be chased by what you flee." That's right. I really believe that unless you're in front of it, it's behind you. Uh, and if it's behind you, it will absolutely drag you down. If you're in front of it, you're in the lead. Or at and least you, said you have a else, chance. Marianne. Yeah. You said something else that really goes along with it. You were talking about whispering at that point. But now when you were thinking about, wow, you said, well, if you're willing to be stupid, you will never be ignorant. And that was my father. My father, I remember saying to my dad, I said, okay. So I was so excited about going to college because I was, I went to college pretty early and I was really excited. I was going to be with big girls. And, and so I said, so what are you going to learn in college? And he said, well, he said, actually, you're going to learn to ask good questions. And I said, what? He said, it's not the answers that are really important. It's your ability to ask questions. He said, but in order for you to be able to ask questions, you have to be willing to be stupid. And if you're not stupid, you're always going to be ignorant. Not to know it all. You, right? you really do. So for me, Elizabeth, this has been a stretch. I know nothing about English history. You know, God mm -hmm. knows I'm so glad to be an American <laughs> with only the years of American history we need to learn. Uh, you know, all mm -hmm. these kings have the same names. They, there were, <laughs> weren't many queens. But Elizabeth really stood out for me. And I studied two queens. One was Mary, Queen of Scots, and the other mm -hmm. one was Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was an amazing woman in that she, she came to power, obviously. She came to power uh, in, a, in a strange way, actually. She came to power because her father, um, Henry VIII, this brutal, tyrannical man who murdered off, you know, five of his wives or killed them off or, had, or they died, uh, mm -hmm. including her mother. Her brother died and she became queen. And she became queen in a country that, believe it or not, was probably more misogynist than our own. Okay. I mean, mm -hmm. they truly did not believe a woman by nature should run anything, okay, that she should, mm -hmm. you know, and this was a time, of course, that, you know, women didn't do that. And Mary, Queen of Scots, had been a very troublesome queen, and the thought that another woman would reign was just, was just terrible. So she now, faced... Were they queen... So I have a question to just get, get our listeners yeah. tuned into two things. Number one, were they queens of two different territories or were they in the, in the Well, one was territory? the Queen of Scotland and one was the Queen of England, but they okay. were actually rivals for the throne of England. Ah, and so there was a competition between these two women for the throne of England because Elizabeth had been, quote, a bastard child. She had been born of Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII had divorced her in order to marry his, you know, second, third, and fourth, and fifth okay. wives. So here's my here's my second question real yeah. quickly, Marilyn. What time when was she born? What was her time period? Fifteen hundreds, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So why I mention that, Marilyn, just to kind of give our readers some context, is that what you're about to describe and what you're kind of tuning into is this dynamic between these two women within a male dominated society back in the oh my 1500s. God. Way, right. way back then. <laughs> and what was interesting, okay, my women, okay, my women 
often married very late. Some of them chose not to get married because at the time in the 70s, if you got married, you know, you often had to play a role that made it very difficult to have your own life. Okay, so, but those who did marry absolutely chose partners who were really supportive. Elizabeth was known as the Virgin Queen, and in a time Mm -hmm. where she knew damn well that if you, if you, if you, if you married a man, he took over your throne. She refused to get married. She absolutely refused to get married. Did she get away with that? Oh, but she got away with it with great difficulty because, of course, it was great clamoring for her to get married and have an heir. And she never did. And she she just decided that the only way a woman could have any control over her universe was by staying single as a queen. And, you know, and, 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 and luckily at this point in, in, in contemporary life, we don't need to do that. But we need to be careful, of course, about the men in our lives. And by the way, this leadership stuff I do is not just for women, because we need mm-hmm. to include the men in our lives in this, because we need them. We need them. We, we work with them. We're involved with them. They need to be as smart about us as we get about ourselves. God knows today's news and the news all the last few months tells us that, um, that, you know, that men need to be instructed in terms of how they relate to us, just as we need to learn how to learn and relate to them as well. You're, you, but you're bringing a solution that was the only one she could see for herself at that time in history. Right. And you're bringing it through to the modern age to say that it hasn't necessarily disappeared completely Although, nope. you, you know, now we have more communication and I look ahead to the coming generations and the dialogue of younger kids often is, different. is very different, yeah. different than yeah. the dialogue we even in our generations grew up with. And so it's intriguing to see whether or not you're finding in the realm of working with people individually, do you find that some of these kind of hidebound ideas about how it is with men and how it is with women. Do you find that on a personal level, people are kind of breaking down those stereotypes? Or yes. they still pretty embedded. They are. No, I, I think I think okay. Here's what's embedded, and it and and it's actually somewhat tragic. Okay, we have probably the lowest rate of women in our political structure at the national level of almost any country. Norway and Iceland are, have more than we do. Okay, that's, that's ridiculous. All right, so- Would you say we have that's a, true of non-democracies as well? Or are you speaking specifically of democracies? Russia has many more people involved in major political life than we do. Okay, oh so- Oh my gosh, so it's a so we are, we are We are literally so far behind. But we're very far behind because it, it's breaking down in business, it's breaking down in entertainment, it's breaking down in medicine. Mm-hmm. My daughters are doctors and half of their class, you know, in the mm-hmm. 80s were, were women. Okay, that's incredible. Wow. That's great. Okay. You know, law schools, I understand, are, are filled with women now. Okay, but, mm-hmm. okay, but we right. still have embedded in this country a notion that our president our leader will be a man not a woman yeah 
mm-hmm. not a woman. And we absolutely make it very difficult for women to rise to any level outside of very local government in order to ascend to any level that is possible. We now have 100 women running for Congress. Okay, and and the irony about those women is that they aren't women, many of them who hold any political office whatsoever. They have realized that if they wait around to hold political offices, they're never going to be able to run for Congress. So they're running and they're teachers and they're doctors and they're dentists and they're regular people who live in communities. They're just gutting it and running. And, um, and we'll see what happens today. Not so different from Elizabeth. Unlike many countries that have had female leaders, unlike Germany mm-hmm. that's had a female leader, we still have embedded in our culture that our leader is to be a man. This really relates to Elizabeth I because she was grappling with that. Now, how did Mary yes. Queen of Scots and she resolve their situation? Mary Queen of Scots, unfortunately, went the route of many of us women. She found herself in concert with lots of got bad guys, okay? And ultimately, mm-hmm. they took her down. Uh, what what se- separated her and made her just a striking female leader is that she had an incredible amount of resilience. She managed to persevere through all kinds of things because her purpose, absolute purpose in life was really to gain the throne of England, which she didn't do, and ultimately was beheaded by her cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth triumphed, but it involved her literally destroying. Killing her off cousin. her cousin, yes, yes. Wow. So and so, I mean, one. talk about a drama, okay, between two very different kinds of women. One that was more stereotypical in terms of the fact that she, you know, she was involved with a lot of, of guys who, the, the, in today's vernacular, we'd call them bad guys. I mean, they just were, they okay. didn't do her well. And Elizabeth, mm-hmm. who absolutely chose to absolutely remain solidly a virgin, although she was mm-hmm. beautiful gorgeous woman who, you know, was very amazingly seductive. Um, but, but, and ultimately she was killed off by Elizabeth, who was so threatened by her and threatened by the fact that she would take her throne that she, she took the counsel of her male advisors and had her beheaded. So isn't it interesting that male advisors and women were still playing, if you will, the, the traditional hidebound stereotypical Absolutely. Roles. We really do need to break that down. And ultimately, numbers are going to do that. Numbers, there's a, there's a, there's a crunch point. You know, you build numbers of people in anything, and, and there's a wave that happens. There's a shift in culture. Right now, there's a shift in culture happening. All of those people who are demonstrating and protesting that, you know, survivors need to be listened to. There's a shift in culture, you know, that was very different from the time that Clarence Thomas, you know, presented, you know, and wherever that's going to end up, there's a shift. Okay. That's taken numbers and that's taken women who leads the way. Let me say this. One of the things that people listening to this because we maybe have listeners who listen to it a little bit later on because we're going to have it posted and up forever. What's fascinating is 
we are in a present moment of history that feels like we all know what we're talking about, but I'm, I'm specifically not um, going to limit it to that because of the following thing. In our conversation today, Marilyn, we have hearkened back to the 1500s, we've gone back to the 70s, and here we are in 20, 2018. I know, we've been all over the place. They all have something in common. But what they have in common is that at any moment, human nature has challenges, conflicts, and if you will, hidebound ideas that whatever one thinks in the moment is right or wrong, it's going to change in the future in some way that we can't even predict or see today. One more thing, no matter what period of history you're in, I really believe that women are major culture changers that we okay. have a tap on things that are really sensitive to absolute change that needs to take place you know that we're that we that as leaders in every way whether it's just speaking up on our own behalf or speaking up for our friends or helping our daughters or promoting promoting and supporting other women we really have the power to really lead change and and I think that's been true in every period of history. Well, it is because it is a reminder that there are some fundamentals about human nature. And one of them is this socialization that we have come to expect of women. And men have socialization that can be very, very constructive for certain points of view. And sometimes what we find is that the quieter voices, and this is where I'm going to say the whisper, the whisper. is just as important as the wow. Because there are men in every era who are not in uh, competition or conflict with women and vice versa, but sometimes right. those quieter voices don't get the attention at the time in a given moment. They only build their strength and their power on a slower, sort of quieter way. And then all of a sudden one day, a tipping point happens. Well, there's a, there's a wonderful colleague of mine um, professor at Stanford, or I think, or she's at Georgetown, maybe. Her name's Deborah Tannen, and she looks at mm -hmm. the language of men and women. And one of the things that she noted, talking about your whisper, which is so lovely, and thank you so much for bringing it up, because it reminds me. What she said is that men often speak in these blustery, loud, kind of blustery tones. And, of course, anger is much more allowed with men than it is women. You know, we're kind of disproving of women who get angry. But we welcome it in men because we see it as powerful. But what she has said is that women in their softer voices, as long as they persevere and as long as they know who they are and as long as they have some sense of their purpose and and they have some passion for what they're doing and a sense of perseverance about it. They're the strongest voices of all. You know, it's true. And here's what I find of personal experience, because just because of the generation I'm a part of, I had the opportunity to go into business and into the sales side of business when I was the only woman in the room of, uh, of 15 uh, professionals, right. uh, uh, executives. And here's what was fascinating. I got along great with all of them, not because they were behaving in a blustery, weird way, but because there was something about the group, and I'm going to say the culture of the company I worked in, where 
there was no sense that the loudest voice was the one that was going to work. It was the one exactly. who made the biggest difference in attracting clients that were great clients and nice people for us to work with. And so because it was about relationships. Where, yeah, it was about relationships. And, you and know, we are we are things, we are absolute. We we dominate in that area. We're, we're great in that area, and we have things to teach men in that area. And there are so many skills that we have that we may take for granted that you've just identified, and that's <laughs> one of them. Our ability and, to do that is incredible. Because I was a, a young kid who didn't know that it couldn't be this way. I was like, well, of course it's this way. What I found was that the men that I had professional relationships with, we were all on the same side, looking to accomplish something great for our clients. And the, they felt that they could present their softer side, their whispers, their aspirations, their goals, their wishes to maybe support their family with a beautiful life and to have clients that were out there, you know, doing not-for-profit causes that were really great. I mean, I had a chance to work with men who had a softer voice and it was being heard. So they, they felt confident to allow their softer voice to come forward and so the socialization within the company it was a wonderfully crazy fun place to work but it had this well, ability where you got to know each well, other well then you do, you have beings. you've discovered a gem because <laughs> one of the things that i teach wonderful. women who thought that they were had to copy men is you know and they had to be stars and they had to be the best and they had to be <laughs> outstanding and they had to and that's true. I mean, you can be a mediocre guy, but you can't be a mediocre woman. But 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 the other truth is this. Most successful women are women like you who actually help other people feel like they're a part of things, who actually engage them, who get them moving, who give them a place. And we are so good at doing that. And we're, we're really constructive at doing that, at really allowing other people to shine. And that's really kind of the earmark of most of the women that I've interviewed. And obviously, you discovered that also, that you gave people possibilities that they didn't know they had, men included. And that is, that's something, I mean, we have so many stunning capacities that in the lexicon of power having been identified as powerful. Our ability to relate, our ability to communicate, our ability to touch people, our ability to resonate with generosity and purpose and our resilience and the grittiness that we have through all kinds of things. Those are incredibly powerful qualities and they are absolutely much more powerful than bluster and they're much more powerful than aggression in so many ways. And that's your whisper, Diane. I mean, it's really, well, that's that soft, is, pervasive, persistent, keep going. I'm here. I'm behind you. I've got my hand on your shoulder. Let's do it. Absolutely. So, Marilyn, we're going to whisper together for a moment. And I'm going to invite our listeners to stick with us. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. Thank you for being with us on WOW Whispering. In each episode, we present a public service announcement that highlights resources committed to uplifting our quality of life. Look for the episode show notes, which have links to learn more. Today, we are pleased to feature 
the National Women's History Museum. It's an online institution preserving women's history and working to establish a physical museum in Washington, DC. Founded in 1996, the National Women's History Museum is a nonpartisan, nonprofit 501c3 educational institution that's dedicated to preserving, interpreting, and celebrating the diverse contributions that women have made to society. By the way, you can reach them on womenshistory.org, the website, or on Twitter at Women's History. Now, on Mother's Day weekend, two decades ago, a group of women dedicated themselves to moving something out of the U.S. Capitol's basement, it's known as the crypt, to its rightful place in the Capitol Rotunda. It was the Adelaide Johnson's portrait monument to Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony. You may have heard those names before. The statue is more commonly known as the Women's Suffrage Statue, and it memorializes pioneering suffragists and first arrived at the Capitol on February 10th, 1921. Five days later, on February 15th, it was unveiled in a ceremony as a gift from the women of the nation to the people of the United States by the National Women's Party. But the very next day, the portrait monument traveled outdoors, down the Capitol steps, and through the doors into the crypt, where it remained for nearly 76 years. Why is women's history so important? Because women's contributions and accomplishments, for the most part, have been overlooked and consequently omitted from mainstream culture. The National Women's History Museum will help fill that void. Rather than rewriting current exhibitions at other history museums, or having to decide what to omit elsewhere to fit in women's history, the museum will serve to place women's history alongside current historical exhibitions. Women's history isn't meant to rewrite history. The objective is to promote scholarship and expand our knowledge of American history. What a fabulous mission. Thank you. So we are back after a short break with a wonderful guest, a woman who is passionate about life, passionate about self-development for women, for humanity, for everybody, for generations that are what we think of now as historical people we never could meet, and then people who are coming into the future. It's Dr. Marilyn Ruman, and I want to let you know that she is very generously um, said that for those who are interested in the work that she does, they can reach out to her directly. And Marilyn, share your email address. It's mruman, and that's, that's spelled M-R-U-M-A-N at AOL.com. And she is somebody who speaks extensively. She works with groups of people. So, you know, she's somebody who is clearly, just by the passionate conversation we've had today, she's all about creating a future that is even more magnificent that we can see today and that she's really committed to it. And I love, I love your energy. I love your passion. So Marilyn, as we complete our conversation today, is there anything in particular that I would, I'd like to mention something you said to me that you wanted listeners to know. You said, I wish listeners to be excited about the impossible and to see it as possible. Can you riff a little bit on that as we close out today? I really do. I Everything, I realize that some of my greatest moments have come when I'm lost because I discover mm -hmm. places I'd never planned to be. 
Some of my greatest moments come when I don't know what's impossible. When I absolutely don't know what's possible. When I just mm. go hack at it. And the other thing I realized just in our conversation together today is that, you know, we, I'm in a generation where, you know, I look around me and the culture is changing and some of it is foreign to me. And, um, and what I realize is that I need to look backwards, good old Elizabeth, and I need to look forward. And, you know, and somebody said that the worst thing that can happen is that you're going to rust rather than wear out. All right. So <laughs> I think that I would rather wear out because I, I'd rather I'd rather stay in it and keep and and keep moving toward toward something that I keep feeling like I need to discover. And each each new experience allows me that discovery, but I need to create the opportunity to have those new experiences. And I just want to invite everyone around you and everyone around me and to invite us both in to help them navigate those new experiences. I'm, I love doing that. And I thank you for the opportunity of letting me share some of my things that I'm passionate about and, and I hope I inspire somebody to to engage in that as well. I love it. Oh Marilyn, there's no question about it. And I have this vision of you as you were describing your your the next stages of your journey. And I envision you just running with curiosity into the future. And at a certain point you'll just take wing and you'll see things from an even more amazing perspective. Yeah, I know. My 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 symbol is Pegasus, the horse with wings, right? Oh, oh my gosh, that's right. I you know something? I didn't even think about that. That is perfect because something you don't know about Marilyn is she is an accomplished horsewoman. So that's perfect. I am. So and I haven't thought of that until just this moment. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're gonna leave our listeners with the wonderful Pegasus visions. And I want to thank you again, Marilyn, for being with us and to our listeners. Just go out and have even more amazing adventures, adventures you can't even see today. And we will but be just have them very soon. Just have them. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you again, Marilyn. It's been a delight to be You're here. welcome, Diane. What a pleasure to be with you in the world of wow whispering. As we complete this episode, I invite you to notice the wows and whispers that enliven or challenge as they fulfill life for you in both tiny moments and transforming experiences. I wish you the very best until we meet next time.